At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. It's great to be together. And as you know, uh, we are gathered here walking through a series called Perspective. We began this series two weeks ago. This is a series that is trying to help us view today's world through a Christian lens. The experiences around us are, are challenging in our world today, aren't they? How do we make sense of them? At times we feel confused. At times we feel angry or feel frustrated. How do we make sense of what is happening around us? Well, just like we need to put, if you have eyes like mine, glasses on to correctly see the world, so also we need to have Christian lenses that we put on as we look at the world around us so that we can correctly understand what is happening. So far in this series, we've seen a few things. We began by talking about the God who is, and we can get to know Him through His Word so that we can anchor to His truth in the midst of the waves that beat us about in this world. And then last week, we continued the series, and we talked about how all of us are created on purpose by God and for a purpose. We're not an accident, and we weren't created to just live any kind of a life, but we were created to live a specific life, a life that we were designed for. That's where we've begun this series. Today, we're going to continue it as we talk about what happened. How is it that there is so much pain and suffering and trouble and problem inside of our world? We're going to see that today specifically by looking at the first five chapters of Paul's epistle to the Romans. But before we do that, I want to just share with you a little perspective uh, from my life. A number of years ago, we were having a problem at our house, and that problem was every time we turned on a shower, the pipes would rattle. Now, when I say the pipes would rattle, it wasn't just, you know, a little tap, tap, tap like a dinner bell. I'm talking about the space shuttle launching rattling every time we turned on this one particular shower. So we did what you would do in that situation. We called in professional help. And so plumber number one, notice the number is necessary, came to our house and, and assessed the situation. And based on his experience and, and, and those things, which I, I don't doubt, it, there was something that caused him to think this way, thought that what we needed to do was to strap the pipes. And so he got under the house and strapped the pipes, thinking that that would solve the problem. Then we go to turn on the shower, and guess what? The space shuttle is launching still. So what did we do next? Well, we call in plumber two. They've got their own solution. Did not work. Plumber three did not work. And plumber four comes over. Now, at this point, my wife, who has had zero experience in fixing space shuttle showers, um, is watching everything that is transpiring. And she makes a suggestion as the wall is open and they're looking at the pipes. She says, what if you just bypass that one spot right there? It seems like that's where the problem is. Well, Based on her expertise and experience, the plumber looks at her and says, no, that won't work. But then when he is out of options, he decides to try her hypothesis. And guess what happened? It worked like a charm. Now, I learned two things in that moment. One thing I learned is that my wife is awesome, right? I, just another example of that. Uh, but, but a second thing that I learned in that moment was how you assess the problem impacts the solution and the effectiveness of the solution. 
If you misdiagnose the problem, you can do something. You can even spend a lot of resources, but it won't stop the rattle. Now, that's important for us to remember as we think about the world in which we live right now, because we're not, I'm not talking here about pipes, but the world in which we live is rattling. Can I get an amen to that? There is a lot of rattling, space shuttle launch type rattling that is happening in the world around us. Well, what do we know about this? Well, we know that this is nothing new, but it's something that's been around from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, and he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. In other words, this life that we live right now is a life of rattling pipes. It's a life of groaning. Now, all of us have personal anecdotes that we could offer to illustrate that. There have been pipes rattling in your life this week, I know. Physically, spiritually, intellectually, relationally, you name it, our pipes are rattling. But there are a few things just statistically also that are helpful for us to see this problem at scale. Let's think about 2017, just in America, and look at those who died in 2017. In 2017 in our country, 860,000 abortions took place in our country. In 2017 alone, 17,284 homicides were committed. And in 2017 alone, 72 unarmed people were killed by police. Now, when I put those statistics up there, to some degree, somebody in this room wants to argue with each of them. But here's what you need to know. I got these off the internet, so they have to be right. (laughs) Right? One of them from Wikipedia, the other from the FBI, another from the Washington Post. At least one of those three sources you like. Uh, But these are numbers that illustrate the rattling of the pipes in our world. But we don't have to go back that far, and we don't have to look that broad. Let's zoom in just to 2020 and think about some of the challenges right here in our own city. Since the beginning of 2020 until this point today, there have been 393 deaths from COVID-19. That's something that has impacted many of you and your families in different ways, that, that pain and that challenge. But also, I don't know if you realize this, but last year in 2020 alone, 2,392 children were served by Mary Abbott House here in Norman. Now, for some of you, you know what that means. But if you don't know what that means, let me help you understand. That is children who have been abused in our county. 2,392 of them have been served in one year. And if you're wondering if that is normal, know that that is two times what is normal. Just the, the, the challenge and the rattling pipes inside of our world. And these are just some of these things. They're just illustrations of the problem that exists around us. But again, what is the diagnosis of the problem? And understanding the problems in the world today will help us to formulate the best solutions. So it's important for us to investigate what is actually going on so that we don't just have a lot of expensive tries, but we actually can employ early on the correct answers. We're going to do that today by looking at Romans chapters 1 through 5. 
Now, that's a lot, and so we're not going to be able to go verse by verse. Some of you are disappointed, others of you are relieved. But know this, if you want to go through those chapters of God's Word, you can go back and look, and back in 2016, 2017, preach through every verse of the book of Romans, and you can find that on our website. But today we're going to look in a cursory way, but it's important for us to do that, and we're we're looking at it from a not-so-irrelevant place Because Romans, as many would articulate, is kind of this amazing Christian theology book. Inspired by God, yes, but also incredibly organized to cover the big issues of theology. And the first five chapters illustrate the important points that we're going to talk about today and how they help form for us glasses through which to understand the world in which we live so that we can properly diagnose the problem and thus employ the right solution. So, let's get started. The first thing that I want us to see today is our problem. Sin is our problem. What is our problem? Sin is our problem. Can you say that with me? What is our problem? Sin Sin is our problem, right? So when you said that, I just just got you to say something. And some of you said it and understood it. Some of you said it because you didn't want to be left out. I understand. It's weird when somebody asks you to repeat something like that. But you're, you're wondering, what did I just say? What does it mean when we say that sin is our problem. What is sin? Well, I want us to look at a couple of different definitions of sin from some reliable sources. Wayne Grudem, in his very helpful systematic theology book, says this. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God and act attitude or nature. So what is sin? Sin is something we commit against God who created us. The New International Dictionary of the Bible has another definition, similar, but also helpful. It says that sin is a condition and an activity of human beings that is offensive to God, their creator. It is both a condition and an activity. In other words, sin is something that we do, but it's also someone that we are. It is attached to our personhood in some way at this moment in history. And so those are definitions that have summarized those definitions by looking at the scripture. So it's helpful for us now to turn and look at the Scripture to see how we come to the understanding that sin is a condition and an understanding that sin is activity, and then what are the consequences of that. So sin as a condition. We see this throughout the book of Romans, but one of the places where it most prominently illustrates is in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, where it talks about how we were born sinners, Part of those verses says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is a condition that we have inherited from our father. Now, in this context, it goes all the way back to Adam. You know, all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve. And the the implication here is that all the descendants of Adam and Eve have inherited something, not a fortune, We've inherited a condition, and that condition is sin, this propensity to go our own way and to do our own thing. Now, how pervasive is this? Well, it's to every human being who has existed now and in the past. The one exception is the person of Jesus Christ because of his immaculate conception and the fact that he was the actual son of God. 
But all of the rest of us have inherited this condition. Romans in chapter 3, verses 9 to 19, summarizes a lot of the Old Testament with kind of a greatest hits playlist of Old Testament verses about our sinfulness. One of them, none is righteous. No, not one. So who among us is not a sinner? No one among us is not a sinner. All of us have sinned. This idea is is driven home even more when we look at a very famous verse, a verse that we're familiar with, Romans 3.23, that says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we have this idea that sin is a condition, and it's a condition that all of us have. But sin is also an activity. It's something that we do. Because we have this sinful condition, we sin. And the Bible is clear about that. Now, what are some examples of the activities of sin? Well, one of the examples of the activity of sin is the suppression and the distortion of the truth. In other words, because we are sinners, we have a broken filter that is misinterpreting the data from the world around us. Why do we need to go back and always recalibrate to the Word of God like we talked about in week one of this series? We need to do so because our filter is broken and we can convince ourselves of all kinds of errors. This is talked about in the first chapter of Romans, verses 18 to 25. One section of that says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. God gives us a revelation of Himself. We misinterpret it, and so we wander off into the weeds. One of the activities of sins is the suppression and the distortion of the truth. Another of the activities of sin is that there are a lot of varieties of it. There are lots of different ways in which we sin. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, a number of those sins are referenced. Famously, verses 26 and 27 talk about the sin of homosexuality, and it's highlighted in this section. But Romans chapter 1 does not just mention one sin, as if to say, if you are a sinner, this is the one thing you will do. But Romans goes beyond that. Paul goes beyond that to tell us that if we are a sinner, there are a lot of different ways this shows up in our life. Not just in our sexual life, but in a number of different places. Verse 29 and following says this, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Friends, when I go through that list, surely one of those is something that you can relate to. And I don't mean relate to as in elbow the person next to you. You're on that list. I mean relate to like, man, that's convicting because that is something, an activity that shows up in my life. That's an attitude that shows up in my life. It's a lot of different varieties of sin. Not only are there a lot of varieties mentioned here, but also another category is laid out for us, and that is that because of this condition of sin, we actually are tempted to celebrate sin, not just to tolerate it, not just to recognize that it exists, but to celebrate it. And the more our culture floats away from the rock of God's truth, the more we are asked to celebrate things that God calls sin. We see this It's not something new to to our culture, but it goes all the way back 
to the beginning. Look at what it says in Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There's this celebration of sin, not just a toleration of it, not just an acknowledgement of it, but eventually, when given to our pattern of sinfulness, we will come to a point of wanting to celebrate sinfulness. Romans lets us know that. Not only that, but the implication and application of sin is not just something that happens in people that are in far-off places and are part of different religions, but it also happens with those even inside of the church. There's challenges with things like judgmentalism. Uh, First five verses of Romans 2. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, don't play the graded on a curve game. I'm not as bad as that person, so I'm okay. I'm not saying that we can't call out right and wrong, truth and error, but it is saying don't play the, the game of I'm going to be okay because I'm better than so-and-so. Not only that, but even self-righteous religiosity. Spellcheck had problems with that one. But Romans 2, 6 through 3, 4, you, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? This idea that knowing the right answers is not enough, we got to do them. Many of us could pass the Bible quiz, but living it out is a lot harder. Just a reminder that we have a condition of sinfulness that leads to activities of sinfulness. And the rubber meets the road when we go beyond that and remember and realize that there are consequences connected to sin. What are those consequences? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 lets us know that one of the consequences of sin is that the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What does that mean, wrath of God? And, and does it seem a little strange for us to see it and to talk about it? You know, we don't like that word because it makes God seem angry and we don't like the thought of an angry God. But really, the, John Stott has said this, I think it's helpful. He said, the opposite of wrath is not love. The opposite of wrath is indifference. Indifference. God is not indifferent to our sin. It's bad for us. So he is upset about it. He is active about it. He's involved. He tries to intervene in our lives, even while we're still living on this planet. So what are the consequences of sin? The the wrath of God, the anger of God, his intervention on our behalf regarding our sinfulness is something that we deal with because We have both a condition and the activity of sin. One of the things that happens in the midst of this is that our our hearts become darkened. If we persist in sin, if we don't repent of that sin, then what happens to our way of thinking? It says, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The lamp that helps us see truth from error is turned down through patterns of willful sin. Why is it that our world so often looks like it is stumbling about in the dark, bumping into furniture? It's because the light has been dimmed because of persistent sinfulness. Why is it that we sometimes can't tell truth from error? Could be because of a pattern of persistent sin. The light bulb gets dimmed. It's a consequence of sin. One of the consequences of sin is that God gives us over. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. What does it mean that God gives us up? It means that God says, if, if you persist in sinning, 
I won't necessarily throw the lightning bolt down right now, but I will allow you to play that out. I will give you up to your own desires so that you can have what you think you want. Hopefully so that you will see that it doesn't deliver what it actually promised. But this is one of the consequences of sin that God gives us up. And and when that happens, when God gives us up, negative consequences often follow into our lives. We receive the due penalty of those things. Receiving, as it says in the second part of verse 27, receiving themselves the due penalty of their error. Somebody wants to commit an affair and they walk off into that behavior, they will, God may allow that to happen. Not that he desires it to happen, but he will give you up to that desire. But the effect is there is a due penalty. You might lose your marriage. You might lose your family as a result of the, that behavior. This is the idea. And not just consequences in this life, but also ultimately there could be the judgment of God that awaits. It says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things so that it leads to the wrath and the fury of God. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and there will be fury. This is this idea of the, the overall consequence of sin in our lives. So friends, when we think about understanding the world in which we live, we need to begin with correctly understanding the problem. The problem is sin. Sin is not someone else's problem. Sin is our problem. Because sin is not just something that exists out there. Sin is something that exists in here, in our hearts and in our lives. We can't get away from it by ourselves. We can't just go home and sin stays at work. We can't just go to the other room and walk away from the laptop because our same lustful heart might go with us in that event. There are challenges in the world in which we live because of the problem of sin. Now, this is a problem that has been recognized by everybody who lives in the world. You know what's interesting? When all of those plumbers came over to my house, none of them said, what rattle? Nobody said that, right? Why didn't they say that? Because it was so loud, it could not be ignored. And none of those plumbers said, yep, there's a rattle, but there is no solution. All four of them said, there is a rattle, and I'm guessing that there's a solution because they just couldn't tolerate just ignoring it altogether, right? And everyone who has lived on the face of the earth is dealing with similar dynamics. We cannot deny that there's a rattle. At the beginning, we talked about that. Everybody's nodding and leaning in. You understand there's a rattle in the world. We cannot ignore that. But the interesting thing is that lack of being able to ignore it is not just something that happens inside the church, but it happens outside the church. The lack of being able to ignore the rattle that's in the world, everybody hears it. That's true of atheists as well as theists. It's true of Christians as well as Muslims. It's true of everyone who lives on the face of the earth. And so all different ideas and belief systems have tried to come up with a problem solution inside of that. And many, many, many in in today's world want to say that the problem is not in here. The problem is out there. The problem is not sinful people. The problem is corrupt society. The problem is social. It's not personal. This is the challenge of the world in which we live. 
Now, there is a prominent thinker who has articulated some of these thoughts. And it's a guy by the name of Karl Marx who lived in the 1800s. Marx had this statement. He says, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. He says, there is a problem. There is a rattle. What is the problem? The problem is class struggle. Free man and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight that each time ended either in the revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Now, you thought the Apostle Paul was hard to understand. But but let me help make sense of this statement. What Marx was saying was he was saying the problem is not in here because there is no God in his perspective. There's no God to sin against. The problem is in society. People are basically good. In here is good. Out there we've created problems. And this idea is something that has influenced entire countries. Over the last number of years, this idea has been tried in communist regimes around the world. And if they were a sports team for the flourishing of their society, they would be like 0-5, right? Everywhere it has gone, it has failed. Why? Why did it fail? Why is it continuing to fail? It fails because it misdiagnoses the problem. It proposes expensive solutions that are addressing the wrong root cause. The problem is not out in society. Though society has problems, we'll talk about that before we're done today. But the problem originates in our hearts. Marx didn't understand that. And neither do many today who have taken Marx's ideas and tried to apply them to contemporary problems and situations to identify different solutions. There's an idea among some in the modern social justice movement that the reason for the problems today are just societal. It's just the wrong group is in power. If we could just take the oppressed group, the victimized group, and put them in power, then suddenly everything would be okay. But there's a problem with that. You recognize what the problem is? The problem is that we are thinking that the problem is out there. When in reality, the problem is in here. And it's not limited to just one group of people, but it's something that we all share. And so by removing one set of sinners and putting another set of sinners in charge, guess who now is in charge? Sinners. Our problem, friends, is in here. And it's important for us to remember that. Now, understanding and remembering this helps us to make sense of a lot of things. One verse inside of this section that I think is helpful for us to look at a little more in depth is Romans 1.21. It says, For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, this verse helps create inside of me compassion for the world in which we live. People that walk around without light bump into things in the dark. And right now in our world, as patterns of sin have developed and been celebrated, people are wandering around in the dark, bumping into things, creating pain for themselves and for those around them. The idea of that goes back to this. How else do you explain things like men participating in women's sports? 
how did that happen? And it's not just a fairy tale. It's actually happening on a court near you right now. What happened because foolish minds have been darkened because of a sinful way of thinking as the truth has been distorted. How is it that there could be ideas and ideologies around our society and world where things are being held up to say that one race is superior to another? Well, that idea is obviously counter to God's word and truth. Why, how could an idea like white supremacy exist? And it does in the lives, not of all, but of some. Well, it's a distortion of the truth. How is it that alternative explanations that could come in and say that somehow there are entire ethnicities who are innocent while other ethnicities are permanently stained? And so by putting ethnicities, swapping them in places that society gets better, it's, it's failing to understand the reality that sin exists and sin exists inside of all of us. How is it that people can look at this created world that exists around us and yet say somehow that it happened by accident, even as complex as it is? Because of heart has been darkened, the light has been turned off, not perceiving the information correctly. So friends, the first thing we need to see and to remember today is that sin is our problem. Sin is our problem. But there's good news, right? And some of you are like, thank you. Finally, what is the good news, Mark? The good news is that Jesus is our answer. Now, before I even put that up there, some of you were anticipating. If I said sin is our problem, what is our answer? Some of you would have said Jesus is our answer. So let's just say it anyway. Jesus is our answer. Now, that is about as basic a statement and basic truth as we could possibly share, right? But the reason why we call it basic truth is because it's truth that you basically just need to know. We don't think this way, and so we need to remind ourselves of this reality again and again. Sin is our problem. Jesus is our answer. Now, this idea of Jesus being our answer is, flows right out of what we talked about last week. We were created on God on purpose and for a purpose, but sin has impacted our lives, but God still has a purpose for us. He still has a love for us and a desire for us, so what has he done? He's made a way for sinful people like you and me to be reconciled to himself. And that way is through Jesus Christ. And we see that throughout the first five chapters of Romans. Jesus is our answer. Jesus, in his gospel, is our salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God extends salvation to us through Christ to save us from sin and its consequences. Jesus also in his faithfulness is our hope because he lived that perfect life. He did not have to die for his own sins, opening him up to the opportunity to die in the place of ours. Romans chapter three, verses 21 and 22, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. His grace leads to our justification. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, tells us that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our salvation, what Jesus offers to us, is not something we earn because who could ever earn something so valuable? It is something that is given to us by His grace as a gift. 
His death paid our price. The wrath of God that we deserve because of the sin that we saw in the first section of this message, we're reminded that Jesus paid that price. In verse 25, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does propitiation mean? It means paid. Jesus paid the price. He took the wrath of God for us so that we might be forgiven and free. His offer also was something that extends to all who believe. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 30 makes this very clear. One part of that, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There is one God who has made one way of salvation, and it's available to all people, regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of what you've done, where you've been, who your parents are. This opportunity exists regardless of what passport you carry. There is hope here, right? There's hope, and that hope is found in Jesus. He is our answer. Not only are these things, but also we think about some of the things Jesus gives. He gives to us peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not at war with him. We approach him on friendly terms because of what Jesus has done for us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He gives us His love, Romans 5, 6 through 8. And his love that he gives us is not just a statement where God says, I love you. He certainly says that to us. But he goes beyond that. He sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. God's love took action. It was a verb, not just a concept, not just a card that he sent. He gives us his love. And he gives us reconciliation with God. He gives us reconciliation with God. In other words, we don't come to God and there's this icy chill of God says, because of Jesus, I have to let you into heaven, but I really don't want you here. Instead, the reality is God says, come on in, my child. You're home. You're with me because we've been reconciled through the work of Jesus. Friends, this is what Jesus has done for us. That is the answer that he has provided. What an amazing answer for the depth of the problems that we face. Now, what does all this mean? Well, first of all, I want to just say that what this means is something that is available to all of us. Every single one of us in the room can apply what I'm getting ready to say. And so there is something in this application for each and every one of us because the gospel is available, not to some, but to all. Jesus made the way to solve the problem of sin, not for some, but for all who would embrace him by faith. But we need to respond and embrace him that way. So what does this mean? The first area that I want to look at is for us personally. And what it means for us personally is there's hope. There's hope, right? There's hope. We live in a world that wants to cancel you. A world that is watching your Twitter feed, a world that is watching your Facebook account, a world that is watching this YouTube video and is deciding whether or not we pass the test, whether or not we can be canceled or kept, whether or not we're safe or not. This is the world in which we live, right? But what happens when you go back in your timeline and there's things that you're ashamed of? All of us could talk about what, you know, this cancellation culture and all those kinds of things, but just, just, just think about it for a moment. You're, you're aware of your sin. All of you are. 
At some point during the message today, you probably thought back to that night or that weekend or that experience or this era or whatever it might be, and there's a sense of shame that flows over you in that moment. Guess what? You don't have to be stuck there. That's a problem. But there's an answer for that problem. That answer is Jesus, who paid the price to reconcile you to God so that you could have peace with him. That's available to us. That's true for those who have have stumbled in in a thousand different ways. There's hope for us, and that hope is found in Christ. And so if you're here today and you feel like God has canceled you, know that there is a hearty welcome in heaven for all who have trusted in Christ. And may we be a church community that also receives one another in that way as well. So part of this is for us personally. But also, it's important for us to think about this as a society. For society, there is hope. For society, there is hope. And and by this, I I know that there are people watching this around the world. So I want to talk just for a moment about America. Now, when I say that, everybody's got a thought. And, And we could go around the room and we could talk about all the ways in which America is not perfect. You know why? Because it's not. It's not a perfect country. It's not God's country, right? There's no promise in Scripture for America. So we don't have that to fall back on in those ways. And yet, this has been an amazing place that has offered incredible freedom where the gospel has been able to go through and throughout to the world. Now, how that has happened and transpired has been largely because our country was founded with a general Judeo-Christian worldview. We were anchored to that. And that worldview and that anchor allowed us as a society to come together. And even when elected officials or kings in other countries made decrees and statements, we were able to appeal to a higher court, right? We were able to say, no, 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 that, that's not right because that is contrary to God's word. And so there was this hope. So even though America was founded on this Judeo-Christian worldview, since we're not perfect, there are real problems that have existed in our country. But Americans over time have been able to reform at a remarkable ability by calling back to, calling back to the truth of God's word. So that we had slavery at our outset, but it didn't stay. It didn't last. Why? because of a belief that all people were created in the image of God. Our society was founded and women couldn't vote. It was reformed out. Why? Because there was an understanding that women were also created in the image of God and and valuable inside of society. And so we've been able to reform that way. And so there is hope for society as individuals point back to the higher standard and call all of us to go there. Now, not everyone in our society holds that viewpoint at this point. And as a matter of fact, that's part of the reason why we've begun to float a little bit deeper out to sea, because we have severed that chain to the rock. But many of us, including many of us in this room and people all over our country, still hold to the truth of God's Word. Because of that, we have the right standard to reform to for our society. And We know that there is transformative power for change in the hearts and lives of people who even today live in opposition to God's truth, and that is through the redemption that is found in the gospel. And that's something we're going to talk more about next week.
So thank you for being with us as we have been reminded of sin as our problem, but also as Jesus as our answer. Uh, Let me pray for us now. Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to look at these truths today. I pray that everyone who hears my voice, all in this room, all joining online, that, that we would come to grips with our own sinfulness. We would recognize the problem that is rattling about us, that it exists inside of us, not just out among us. And Father, that we would just fall in faith on the work of Christ, that we would trust him as our answer to the problem, and that we would see him transform not only our personal lives, but also the society in which we live. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 